Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 275 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And it's an extra special treat. We have Ricky De La Viaga from Los Angeles, California. Howdy. Alrighty. Where, where are you from originally? Uh, Houston is where I grew up. Houston. Yeah. Oh, it's another Texan. Yeah. Another Texan on the show. <laughs> Texas heavy today. Yeah, that's right. I was here. You, you were in San Antonio, right, Tammy? No, I was originally from El Paso. Oh, okay. Um, but we have mentioned um, Tim. What was his name from, from Houston? Uh, the guy with the arm. I don't know. <laughs> is, that his, is that where he's from? Houston? Yeah. Well, I mean, he had like a Houston Texans hat on. Did he? Okay. Well, I, I, just, I just remember the, 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 uh, the tattoo of um, Texas on his bicep. Right. <laughs> Classy. Um, what's his name now? Jeez, I knew it until you, until you said that. It's been anyway. so long that I can't remember, but... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, he used to do a podcast, too. I don't think they do it anymore. Hmm. Okay, so we'll dig in with some fact check. Last week, I mentioned uh, watching PBS, or WNED is the call sign, uh, in the 70s, where I first watched um, shows like Doctor Who and Sesame Street, of course. And that was on Channel 17. I think I said Channel 27 or something. And um, that was over-the-air signal. And apparently, you can still get over-the-air signals. I don't know if it's on UHF um, in the Niagara region, which is where, where I lived. And somebody replied to me on Twitter that you still can, but I wasn't sure if it's a digital signal coming on that same channel or, or an analog, but I've got a link here I'll put in the show notes about uh, TV in the uh, Niagara region. Um, also, we mentioned DHH a number of times, but neither one of us could remember his name. His name is David Hennemeyer Hansen, and he's the gentleman that wrote about the Apple Card uh, debacle last week, and uh, we'll, we'll follow up a little bit more on that in, in a few minutes. And the other thing, Mark mentioned that there are three major credit agencies in the United States. Um, one of them is Equifax, of course. Experian is another. Experian is actually out of the UK, and 
TransUnion is another one that, that are used by the credit agencies in the United States to figure out what you guys are worth. And I've got a link here from thebalance.com, which talks about uh, how the credit card bureaus work in, in assessing your, your credit worthiness, as it were. And of course, there's still debates about that. So that's a fact check for this week. So Jaime, do we have any Ask MTJC? We got a couple. First one up here is from uh, Tim Miller, developer at Century One, mm-hmm. who uh, was chatting to me and said, hey, catching up on the MTJC podcast, and I heard your question about uh, VM tools. Mm-hmm. I swear by Parallels, or at Parallels Mac. Been using it for years. Also, you don't need Windows for .NET Core unless you are targeting Windows-specific APIs. Um, so that's, that's pretty good advice. I looked a little bit into it uh, since then. I haven't actually set up anything yet. I do think that using .NET Core with its cross-platform nature will probably be the most convenient way for me to do things, but I still really want the finalized setup just to make really, really sure that um, even if it should hypothetically work, I can verify that it will work or, you know, sort of customer replicated environments. Sure. Um, and back in the day, I did, I put a note here in, the, in our notes here, but um, back in the day, I did start with Parallels and, and I tend to be pretty loyal to the products that I use. And I can't remember what the reason was for me to switch to VMware, but I, I did switch out after, like, I think I probably used Parallels for a while, but um, Parallels had more, had a, had a better import export feature, if I remember correctly, in terms of if you, if you wanted to move from one one of these, I don't know, emulators to another. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't remember why I switched in the first place. But, you know, again, and as I said in, my, in our note here privately, um, basically Windows makes them suck e- equally. So, but that was <laughs> that was Windows 98. And, and I, th- I have to say that Windows 10 is, is a whole lot more better these days than, than the 98 days or even ME and all that nonsense before. And if anybody who's been using Windows for a while knows that Windows NT was best of all. Anywho. Okay. So what else we got for AskMTJC? This one I'm going to let you read because this one was dedicated okay. to you. Yeah. So this was actually a, a tweet uh, from Joe Cabrera asking us not to say hello or hey Siri <laughs> anymore because his HomePod won't stop uh, playing whatever we ask to him. So yeah. And, and that's fun. I, I pointed out that I think it was last week or two weeks ago, we were saying, uh, yes, Siri, Bob. Oh, sorry. I did it again. Uh, and my devices here fired off when I said that because I guess they thought I had said, hey, Siri, somewhere in... Oh. I did again. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why I generally say "Hey," followed by the word "Siri," because even what you had said before, as you know, bless your heart, you tried to put a gap in there. But mm-hmm. we do know that a significant percentage of our fans are using Overcast, which means they probably have the Ooh, one that right. removes the pauses or the little gaps oh, in the audio. So Overcast probably will helpfully, he says, with quote words, uh, remove that, shrinking it down to "Hello," followed by the word "Siri" without the yeah. words, followed by the word. Um, so we apologize for any of those times we've set those off. It's well, really actually, challenging. I do, I do remove the spaces too when I'm editing the show to make it a little, brief, little take less time because in, in, in our in our typical analog recordings we're pretty long. Um, so yeah, I have to be I have to be cognizant to put spaces back in sometimes, and maybe maybe I could be guilty of that too. So. Tim Miller did say in the thread with Jaime that uh, the .NET Core tooling is still much better on Windows than uh, Visual Studio for Mac, which is probably not a surprise, but still, mm. you know, for those of you doing .NET Core development uh, while driving at home, Visual Studio for Windows, best bet. Okay, so yeah, I mentioned before we were talking about the Apple Card uh, credit rating stuff that was happening. Um, and uh, so this is an article from uh, the wife of DHH, otherwise 
otherwise known as J.H.H. I don't know if she... Jamie, I think is her name. Jamie. Jamie Hannermeyer Hansen. Yeah, she talked about uh, about her position, um, you know, with... Her, her title is, I applied for the Apple card and what they offered was a sexist insult. So I guess she's taking it, you know, hard. Um, really interesting read from her perspective, um, talking about, the, you know, she was basically a former high-earning tech worker. Now she's a homemaker because they, she's taking care of the kids on, and she has to put that on her tax return because that's technically the case. But um, she does say, and I'm quoting here, that uh, it's about how rich people nearly always get their way because she because they did go back and and you know apply or, or complain or whatever they were giving. Oh, of course, I'm sure we'll give you whatever. Um, and she just sort of she said that it's justice for another white rich woman is not justice at all. And uh, a little later on in the article, um, which I do encourage you to read, she does she does say we cannot keep sliding into a black mirror world. Apple can and should be better than this, and we should all be better than this. Yeah, I just encourage everyone to follow the link in the Fast Company post that will be in the show notes to read her actual post that she published on David's blog. Uh, it's really, you know, well put. And, um, you know, she does mention she's a millionaire. And so, mm. you know, that's at a certain point, I think your credit limit should reflect your actual, you know, wealth. And uh, clearly there is something going on here that's... Yeah, right. And and we all expect the Apple card to be the card for the rest of us as well, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I think we were talking, this is just to follow up again. Um, I had mentioned Amazon and their secret AI recruiting tool. Uh, so I found the link and I've linked it here in the show notes just uh, quickly that um, it has a sort of bias against women. I actually, did, I did hear something on the, um, I think I put it in Slack. Um, I didn't put it in show notes here. There was a um, Fox business was interviewing um, a, a, an expert in AI about uh, her, her thoughts on this. And she had sort of said that, you know, like that, uh, you have to be careful that these AI tools aren't filtering for things like women or women's like you know i went to a women's university or you know i belong to a women's club because apparently that can sort of you know be used in to to weight down the um the score uh as it were in in the ai tooling so i'm sure mark would have something to say about that i don't know about you guys well yeah i mean he had an interesting point in the last episode about you know correlation and causality and how they're not necessarily you know picking up on the same signals we would think of as gender related signals but that they happen to correlate with the fact that the tech industry at large is fairly sexist and, you know, women tend to get promoted less than men. And so therefore, um, you know, it ends up having a gender bias, not because it was intentionally seeded that way, but, you know, it's making... Um, judgments and patterns out of the data that we wouldn't even necessarily realize have gender bias. True. And I mean, and this is, this is the thing about gender bias in general is, is that it, uh, sorry, that was a bit of alliteration that caught me up, but, um, historically, you know, women have been given the short end of the stick and, um, that may sort of play into how AIs are, are evaluating, you know, based on, on current or past data. Right. Yeah. Um, if we always treated, you know, uh, minorities the way we do, and we always treat women the way we do, then perhaps that's the, the expected norm. And the challenge is to try and change that. I mean, we've talked about, you know, STEM and and, and trying to get more women into tech industries. And, and you know, I went to a talk by uh, Jessie Cartier at V60i Dev a couple of years ago, and she pointed out that it actually starts when girls are young, like, you know, to sort of make sure that they maintain that desire to be in these fields and not get to feel defeated. And so I think that, you know, if the pat if the data pattern already has that sort of, this, this is how the 
world works, then we have to be careful not to let that that persist, right? Yeah, and I think it's very easy to make assumptions in the way that you sort of teach the model or what you teach it to recognize and pull out as signifiers that end up having just sort of disastrous consequences. Like in this article, it says the group created 500 computer models focused on specific job functions and locations. They taught each to recognize some 50,000 terms that showed up on past candidates' resumes. The algorithms learned to assign little significance to skills that were common across IT applicants, such as the ability to write various computer codes, the people said. Instead, the technology favored candidates who described themselves using verbs more commonly found on male engineers' resumes, such as executed and captured, one person said. Hmm. Gender bias was not the only issue. Problems with the data that underpinned the model's judgments meant that unqualified candidates were often recommended for all manner of jobs, the people said. With the technology returning results almost at random, Amazon shut down the project, they said. Wow. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, like we just have to be aware of, of we're feeding these uh, these robots. Yeah, and what we're teaching case. them to value and, and pay attention to. All right. I mean, you got something for us? Yeah, I thought this was a nice story about uh, a dad from Texas, of all places. Um, oh, that was the connection. Okay, I got it. <laughs> well, I, I actually don't know how this came into my my feed. Maybe from a Texas fan club. Um, Maybe it's a bias you have. You know, I believe I saw it on Twitter. So it could be that Twitter's machine learning algorithm said, hey, this person is originally from Texas. So why don't we feed him stuff that has Texas in the in news? Um, be that as it may. So uh, this dad is talking about the Apple Watch. And in this case, how it's helped his uh, whose son is on the autism spectrum. And uh, his son is very, uh, very much a social butterfly, but has had trouble modulating the volume of his voice. Um, and I guess they had the aha moment. It's like, well, we've got the, the noise app on the Apple Watch. Like, well, I can show him like, look, like when you get too loud, it goes from green to yellow. And that's sort of a nice little way for his son to help, you know, modulate what he's doing, help, you know, keep a reference check there. And I thought that was, that was pretty cool. That's not something that I would have normally thought of as a usage for the Apple Watch. That's interesting. You know, a friend of mine, Peter Cook, friend of the show, um, he, he was one of the people who talked about his son's use of the iPhone um, and the iPad, specifically in our in our uh, iPhone uh, um, anniversary show that we did a couple of years ago. And uh, he was telling me um, that the Apple Watch has also changed his life, his son's life around as well, um, because it's enabled him to go to to a college and into a special needs program. Um, he's I think he's, he's graduated this year after a couple of years in this broadcasting program. In fact, he does the outro in one of our shows, right? Um, and John, John, uh, Jonathan, he, um, my son Jonathan has cerebral palsy, and for him that means visual, motor, and cognitive challenges. A couple of years ago, as he graduated from high school, he was accepted into a two-year community college program for developmentally disabled young adults called the CICE program. It's a combination of life skills courses with short-term job placements, and the coolest thing, each term, one real college course of their choice, with a facilitator assisting them to keep up with their college peers. At orientation, the program directors told the parents the students were required to carry a mobile phone with them to aid them and independence and enables them to keep in touch with home, peers, and instructors. Although my son uses an iPad daily at home, it's on a stand. He can't easily hold and operate a phone because his hands are tight and don't really coordinate. We worried a phone would get dropped constantly in that busy environment. But the first day of school was a day before the unveiling of the Apple Watch 3. I immediately upgraded so my son could inherit my first-gen Apple Watch and my current iPhone. He immediately took to the Apple Watch. He could make phone calls from the watch, consult the calendar for classes or wheelchair bus pickup time, and exchanged texts with us. It provided contact with us and reassurance from afar when his aid was late or there were last-minute changes to his schedule. 
One morning there were problems with the main elevator, and his aide had decided not to find an alternative route to class. Jonathan called me from his watch, then held his wrist aloft for nearly ten minutes as I cajoled the assistant to find another option, the freight elevator, and gave her instructions on who to call and what to do. The next year, when the walkie-talkie feature was announced, I upgraded again so Jonathan could get my old Series 3, as the Series 1 can't handle walkie-talkie. Walkie-talkie became his go-to method of contacting us from afar. It's quick, responsive, and personal. The watch's ability to do most of the immediate functions of the iPhone didn't just make a huge difference. It was all the difference. Had he tried to apply to this program just three years before, he wouldn't have been able to handle a phone by himself and probably wouldn't have been allowed to have this experience. But the Apple Watch has given him an independence he couldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, the, the, the watch and the iPad have, have changed this guy's life. And actually, I'm going to put a link in the show notes here um, and encourage people to watch this piece, which I've talked about before. It's called Dylan's Voice. And it was about how the iPad trans- changed this one kid's life uh, who also had trouble communicating. Hmm. Um, and uh, so the iPad was able to, able to, he was able to use the voice uh, feature in the iPad to actually speak for him. And, uh, and it opened up a world for him as well because he now had a way of communicating with people outside of, outside of his own head, right? So it's amazing what these technologies can do to empower people not just you know those of us who want to use photoshop and our ipads and stuff right yeah it is funny about texas people that i mean this it's like as if it's important what state he's in but it's the title of the article texas dad so you know if you were in minnesota would it be a minnesota dad <laughs> i wonder <The> texans <laughs> are just like overly proud of their state so as a former texan i feel okay staying i guess is it, who's the author where's the author from i wonder oh i'm Morris, canadian right like yeah hmm. Hmm. all right um, um, I, I just this is sort of follow up for I guess it's for Spotcast and for for um, our show here. I think we talked about Disney Plus in the last couple of weeks, but uh, interesting little calculus here. We've been talking about um, the cost of all these services that we're going to get, you know, to watch television on our devices and our Apple TVs and things, and as opposed to w- what we used to pay for cable. There's an interesting little calculator on this link uh, from Market Watch, which you can go through and you pick up uh, the shows you're going to watch. Netflix. Maybe you should do. Maybe you shouldn't do this, Jaime, or don't do it live on the show but if you pick up uh, netflix and cbs all access and hulu and amazon prime and there's also sling tv disney plus apple tv plus and youtube tv it tells you in the next 50 years how much you're going to pay this is not going to be a problem for me because i don't think i'm going to live that long but yeah if, and and sort of at a projected rate <laughs> that's of so weird sorry that's a weird <laughs> like, silver lining it's like <laughs> I know, I i'll just, be dead I long before then i went 50 years okay well when i'm 110 and i'll be watching these shows i don't think so um i don't think i, I think i'll be if I'm alive at 110, wow, I wonder if I still have the podcast then. But uh, it'll be really interesting. But uh, uh, so tune in, folks. Um, yeah, but I don't know if you have you tried out this calculator, Jaime? I just did it live right now. So I have standard Netflix, which is different than their basic, and I don't have the premium. I have Amazon Prime annual, and I do have YouTube TV. So assuming I keep all of those for the next 50 years, my lifetime cost would be $73,987. Wow, that's a lot. And how much if you add Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus? Let's see, Disney Plus. Uh, is it cheaper for annual? It is. It goes down a little bit. I probably probably would do the month to month. And Apple TV Plus goes up to eighty six thousand one hundred forty six dollars total. So wait, you, when you added Disney Plus, it went down? No, I'm sorry. If you, you can choose between month to month Disney Plus, which I think is like oh, it shows right here six ninety nine a month. But Disney Annual is a little bit cheaper five eighty three a month. Right, right. Huh. And I don't have kids, so there, there's zero chance I'm going to sign up for an annual. It'd be way cheaper for me to just binge something like Mandalorian or whatever 
else comes out. Yeah, but it's a, it's about the price of a year's, year's year's worth of university these days, right? Isn't that what university costs these days? Depends yeah, on where you go. I mean, room and board, maybe. <laughs> Including room and board, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and, you know, like I pay, I can tell you, I, I pay, I think about $80 a, a month for cal- for cable TV right now. But then, you know, also, I also stack onto that Amazon Prime. But Prime I pay once a year, so I don't know. And I, I don't understand that, that that one there. I buy Prime, I get Prime because of the, the delivery stuff, not because I want to watch TV, right? Um, but yeah, then the Netflix and the, I don't get the Hulu here. We don't have, we, well, we're getting CBS All Access, but I don't need it yet. So Disney Plus and Apple Plus, yeah, I think, um, yeah, of course I can, I can share. I can cut the, this calculus in half, as we said earlier, but yeah. good to be old, I mean, It's good to be old. It's funny. There's a typo in the first line of this article. It says Netflix for twelve ninety nine a year. I'm like, I want your deal. What? Yeah, she means a <laughs> month, but uh, it's just really right. like very Sign first line. You know. Anyway. Sign me up. Yeah. I do think I understand the point of what people are looking at um, of like, hey, cutting the cable, cable cord is supposed to be a lot cheaper than cable. Like, I still maintain that if you somehow subscribe to all of these, yes, it will be more expensive. We did have way more content than cable has ever had. And better content, point. right? Um, better content, arguably. I'd also think that um, I'm going to draw a parallel here to the uh, subscription fatigue that I think we've talked a little bit about and certainly a lot of folks talk about with regard to apps and other services. I think it's going to be a more open and fluid sort of thing for folks where I might say, hey, you know, I, I do want to subscribe to this thing, so I will, because I get enough value out of it, I will subscribe and I can always choose to unsubscribe and switch to something else. I think that will be a little bit more of a sort of fluid sense of value moving along versus like, well, I, I guess I got to stick with this because I bought it for, you know, $500 right. you know, three years ago. Yeah, try so, switching your cable plan, you know, not easy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And they also had a thing here where where in Canada where they, they, they legislated that rather than giving you these cable packages, they had to give you the choice to, to select individual TV channels. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being the same price anyway. So like it, right. it was kind of a dumb exercise that they went through, um, you know, because they because they mark up the channels individually enough that that, you know, it works out to either more, more money than buying the package. Right. And you're still fighting all the commercials, too. So. Right. That's true. And, and I think on the software side, uh, Tim, I think you'd mentioned an episode or two ago that like if you subscribe to everything that Adobe Creative Cloud subscription service has, like it's way too expensive if you're sort of dabbling here and there, uh, but probably is worth it if you're, you know, full time professional using these tools. Um, yeah. yeah that, sure. So there is some downside to it. Like there's, I think it raises the floor, I think, um, as a consequence. But I think it also removes the sort of top end sort of sunk cost that you might have to deal with where, you know, if you bought the whole, I, I don't know what all the tools for Adobe would cost. I'm going to pretend it costs like $2,000 to was buy. 2500 Tim mentioned it. I was like ready to, to email in about it or something. But yeah, he, he said it on the last episode too. Yeah, it was $2,500. So like that was like a used car price. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, well, so, it was, it was 17 something to, to renew. Right. But it was, it was, yeah, I think, and I think I mentioned the original, like I found my invoice for Photoshop. It was like 875 or something. Yeah, the master collection. Um, yeah, and the master collection was was crazy insane. But but the thing is, like you know, I think when we when 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 the Creative Cloud first came out, and this is probably it's been probably about five or six years now, right, or maybe more. Um, but when it first came out, if you did the month, if you worked out the monthly cost or multiplied it out to like a year or two years, it cost the same as as buying the whole package. It's gone up quite a bit since. I mean, because I remember yeah. it being like forty dollars or something originally, but now it's like yeah, 40, they did 60, the same right? thing where they had a discount at the beginning and then they sort of you gradually lose your discount over time but it's i agree with you it's still a better deal than it used to be 
And the best thing about it is it aligned the incentives finally, because the problem with the old system was Adobe was encouraged to hold off features and bug fixes and things that people needed so they could sell a new version of CS. You know, they had to make the CS6 bundle. And now they can just release updates whenever they're ready and everybody's on month to month. And so they're not holding back features and, you know, trying to create these big releases. And I mean, this makes me think of Apple with the yearly software updates and, you know, what it would be like if they just gave up this idea of, you know, having a big release every year and instead just released features when they were ready. I mean, but, you know, there's this other side to that. Look, And it comes to like from the analog, well, I mean, sort of digital analog days. Like, you know, when I was in print production, we would use a certain version of Photoshop, you know, for an extended period of time because there was a feature in there and we liked the way it worked. Right. And we wouldn't necessarily go to the new new version of the app. Like, you know, even though it was the new shiny new version, we would we would stick stick with the old like even the old Mac OS. We would keep that on our drives because it worked the way we needed to do it. We, we, we knew the, how it worked and we, we could rely on it. And Apple was sort of the same way, too. You didn't necessarily have to, you know, throw system or uh, Mac OS or what do you call it? System 8 or whatever. Um, you didn't have to, I think it was called first Mac OS 8 was when it was first called Mac OS. But you didn't have to you didn't have to install that update if you st- if you liked working with 7.5. Right. Um, you know, maybe it worked with your network or whatever. But but now it's kind of like, you know, oh, everybody has to keep moving forward as, as we move. Right. And um, that's changed in the last 10 years. Like the I- iOS has been around. Right. Because we like you said, we've got this yearly update thing and and you have to keep moving the peanut forward. And, and think about maybe there was a feature in iOS 4 that you liked that has been long gone. Right. Because Apple changed directions. I mean, like take iCloud, for instance, how many times has iCloud changed in the last, you know, four or five years? Right. You know, they, they've tried different like iCloud, sorry, core data, I should say core data on iCloud. Right. That's what I meant. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the the mentality now is is um, is you have to do this constant update thing. And I, and I was doing some some research for a, a colleague at work about releases like, you know, release cadence and how often, you know, releases come out. And and she asked me to also include the social networks. Well, all the social network apps, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and what was the other one she asked for? Um, it was four or five of them. But every single one of those is now doing uh, continuous deployment. Right. Right. So every couple of weeks is a new version coming out. Right. So it's kind of interesting the way that things are just moving forward, whether you want them to or not. Right. Yeah. And I think Chrome is an interesting example here. Like nobody knows what version of Chrome they're running. And it just <laughs> right. updates relentlessly in the background and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't even stay on an old version of Chrome if you want to. I think it depends on the environment you're working in, by the way. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. If you're doing uh, like managed deployments, maybe you can. But coming back to the TV thing. So I was, I was chatting with a, a, a fellow Torontonian who, who said he was so close to cutting the cable last week. But the thing that stopped him from doing that was access to sports. So how is that happening? I mean, you, I know you are sports, you're a sports ball guy. How do you deal with sports in this cable cutting environment? Is that something you can do still? That's a big reason for me to have YouTube TV um, beyond sort of the you know, YouTube originals and other stuff that goes with it. Um, the live sports thing I think I'd mentioned some years ago was a pretty big reason why I hadn't cut the cord until probably about this time last year when I said, oh, uh, YouTube TV gives me the ability to see live sports. It has a pretty interesting mix of sports packages um, included with it. I, I believe you can pay for extra ones, like if you're really into like the SEC college football channel or the New York Yankees Yes channel and, and other stuff. Um, I don't pay for those. I you know get the local market stuff, which is pretty good and fine for me. Uh, also with the ability to sort of PVR stuff indefinitely, which is nice. So that's worked out pretty well. Now, granted, uh, YouTube TV is basically like paying for... It's really hard because it's 
like 50, 55, I forget what they raised it up to uh, per month. So it's kind of like replacing cable with cable. But when yeah, I look at it, it's, yeah. it's, it's actually a lot cheaper than what I remember pricing out uh, locally with, with Comcast Xfinity for what would be the equivalent setup, not the basic, basic cable, which is like twelve ninety nine a month or something. Um, so it, it's, it's a little bit different. And, and to, uh, to Ricky's point earlier, like I can just quit that thing now if I wanted to, right? I don't have to like go scream at some customer service representative or uh, get a notarized letter with my lawyer's signature on it to get them to, you know, get me off the package and stop hounding me and everything. So And return your box. Oh, yeah. If returning the equipment is a hassle, too. Yeah. 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 They're just going to throw it into a bin anyway, right? Yeah. Hmm. Fun stuff. All right. Well, last week we touched on the MacBook Pro 16, um, and I've had a couple of chances to visit the Apple Store in the last week, so I you know, went on Sunday to, to have a peek at it because I, I, I took a Mac in for to get the battery replaced, that MacBook 15 thing we were talking about eons ago. Um, and I got, the, the gentleman told me that the, they had just received them and they would be out tomorrow. So I, I went, uh, that was on Friday. So I went on Sunday to look at the can, at the computer. Of course, the store was packed and I had like two seconds with the Mac to sort of try out the keyboard. But I had a chance to go back and pick up that 15 inch uh, on Monday. So I, and of course, it was the store was quieter and I had a chance to play around with the keyboard and try it a bit more. It does feel a bit sort of spongy, like, or not spongy as Joe says in this article, which I'm going to talk about in a sec. But it does feel very similar to keyboards that you've worked on in the past. I took a couple of shots and put them up on my Twitter account. I had happened to have a 15-inch with me, so I took side-by-side shots of the two. Um, so the 2015-2016 the uh, M MacBook Pros are roughly the same size as this new this new Mac. Um, a little lighter, of course, but uh, heavier than than the previous Touch Bar Macs, but uh, but not that much. Um, yeah, so it was a good thing. And so, so Joe wrote a blog post about this on, on the 11th, or sorry, on the 16th, about um, how how his experience with it. And again, it's, it's interesting. He, he sort of fed me some of the thoughts that, that made me pay attention when I got to the, in front of the Mac at the at the store is that you're standing, the, the Mac is not at a, at a proper keyboard typing height. Um, but it's really hard to sort of judge between, they had a MacBook Air there, and, which had the current style, the butterfly switch, butterfly switch keyboard. So I tried that one out for a bit to sort of reorient myself. And then I tried the uh, the 16-inch. Um, so it's interesting about this, uh, about the butterfly and the and the scissor switch keyboard. I, by the way, I put a Twitter poll up for those of you who want to play along at home, um, asking people to to comment on whether they even had problems with the touch bars or uh, touch bar Mac keyboards and whether or not they, or if, or if they just completely avoided the whole problem and were waiting for the scissor switch to, sh- to ship. But I think some of the hosts on this show are doing, right? Um, you guys have a chance to look at this article and what do you think from Joe? Joe Triplinski, by the way. I'm actually going to curious to see what you thought, Ricky. Yeah, so I'm in the same camp. I was, you know, sort of nodding along at home listening to the last episode about, um, you know, people trying to get the most mileage out of the old MacBook Pros. I have a 2015 that I love dearly. I ordered it at the very last minute and uh, I had had problems with my previous MacBook Pro when it would do the graphics switch between the uh, the two chips. mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it would crash uh, to blue screen or black screen. I'd never had that happen on a Mac before. So I got sort of scarred by that. And so when I ordered this one, I just got the built-in Intel uh, graphics card, which works fine for me, even though I do a bunch of graphics stuff and, uh, you know, maxed out everything else. And I just love this this MacBook. And uh, as I heard about more and more issues with the keyboard, I just got more and more smug about it because when I ordered it, a bunch of people were like, really? They're about to release a new one. And I really haven't, I mean, I have not fallen in love with the touch bar. Every time I look at it, I get sort of confused about what it's supposed to be doing. I would really like Touch ID. Uh, that would be really cool. Um, 
Um, but I, just like you, Tim, had a chance to go into the Apple Store and play around with the new 16, and they had the 15-inch right next to it. And so I did try both keyboards. I tried to get my wife to type on both of them, too. And um, uh, it's definitely, it feels a lot like my 2015. Like, I feel right at home on the new keyboard, and the old one just... I mean, it. it I, I'm just not used to the key travel, right? I mean, I, I get that Joe really likes it, and I think if you're a certain kind of typist and you know very nimble fingered or whatever, then maybe it's uh, like much more comfortable to not have to press down so hard and just barely graze the key and have it, uh, you know, take the input. But uh, I really like the new one, and I the one thing I did take issue with with what you guys said on the last episode was that only developers use the escape key. I mean, I do a lot of web stuff, <laughs> and you know that's what you need to get rid of. I don't use the escape key as a developer. I use it in to get out of Acrobat presentation mode or PowerPoint or whatever, right? Yeah, full screen. You said full screen, which I agree with, but then it's when the modal pops up, right? Like somebody has a light box on their website or something and if the developer doesn't bind the escape key to get rid of the modal, to me that's like a code smell and like, you know, it should have gone back into QA at that point. So um, yeah, I mean, I think ordinary everyday people do need the escape key. I think it's important that it's there. Uh, I think it was a mistake to get rid of it. I really like the spacing between the keys as well. Like I can't type as well whenever my wife has the, you know, the MacBook one or whatever, the one that just has one port on it. And, you know, that's MacBook. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Just MacBook now. But um, every time I type on that, I I make some mistakes and I just get a little frustrated with that keyboard. So, um, but she hasn't had any issues with it. And so I think it's interesting to me that uh, at least anecdotally for me, more people have had issues with that uh, butterfly switch on the MacBooks Pros than on the 12-inch MacBooks. So that's interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm. I think you know, it's a very difficult sort of balancing act that they're trying to do with these. And uh, I get what Joe's saying about the aesthetics of the keyboard. But I mean, you know, I don't spend a lot of time staring at my keyboard. I spend a lot of time typing and looking at the screen. So. Oh, you're one of those touch typer people. Yeah, I try. Yeah, I was a little shocked because I. My my work laptop is a 2019 MacBook Pro, uh, 15 inch, I think. And I, 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 so granted, I work from home, so I have a setup, and I rarely actually have to type on the physical keyboard that comes on the laptop. But when I do, it just feels awful. Like I can't, I mean, I love Joe, but I can't comprehend how he could possibly like that. It's, it's, you know, everybody's got their own thing, I guess. So I'm, I was taken aback by reading this. Like, what? Somebody actually liked it? I mean, disregard all of the other negatives that come with it, right? Like, you know, when things can go wrong. Um, I was actually surprised that, that somebody thought it was really good but um i don't know i i have my 2012 that i'm using now and and when i type on that it you know it, it feels pretty similar to my um magic keyboard well, i have two different versions of the magic keyboard actually a, a newer wireless and a, actually I don't know what vintage this is but you know it, it actually uses real batteries it doesn't have an internal battery that's how old that one is oh, wow and those feel really pretty good and i'm like well if the the new laptop feels even vaguely like that it will be good uh, at least from a you know usability standpoint uh, i work on a variety of different keyboards right like my my work machine is a 2017 or 2018 2017 touch bar mac right but i've worked on a 2016 version i've worked on three different three different iterations of the the, um, the new touch bar macs um i also and we have about i should say we have about 20 or 25 of them in in our office and um but we have a whole bunch of you know 2013 2015 2016 um 15 inch 
MacBooks. We, that's our standard Mac. And so I, I've worked on those keyboards too. And, I, and I've worked with all of them at the same time. And of course, I work on a 26, 2013 MacBook Air. So I've got the old style keyboard. I'm currently typing on my desk. I've got one of the aluminum extended keyboards, which I think is the same type of key again, uh, scissor switch key, right? That's what I use when I'm when I'm recording the podcast. But it's funny because I, to be honest, with you, I really don't care. I, I, I really don't notice. I hadn't, you know, I, I like the touch bar. I like the new Mac. I hadn't, I, and the keys are different. They are lower, they are wider, that kind of stuff. I do find that, you know, sometimes when, when I'm flailing typing, because I, I, I didn't learn to touch type, um, I often can hit keys on the, or I can hit the touch bar when I don't mean to. Like, you know, for instance, the above the delete key on the on the um, the right-hand side is the sleep touch bar icon, right? So I had our IT people move the, the icon over so that it's not underneath the delete key, because I was constantly typing away, and I'd go to hit delete, delete a word or a character, and i put my Mac to sleep. Oh, the other man. problem I had with the touch bar when it first came out is that above the escape key or where the escape key would be on your, your if you're in Apple Mail, that was the send button for email. Like who designs this software, right? Because you know, you'd be in the middle of typing an email, all of a sudden it would go whoosh, and Ooh. off it would go. And you're like, uh, wait a minute, I wasn't done with that. Um, but yeah, coming back to the keyboards, I, I work on a variety of different keyboards. But the funny thing I've noticed is in, in for like the last couple of months now, I've been using my, my brain technique to train myself to touch type, but I'm getting pretty good at it. I've been going to this website where, where there's like these little lessons you do every every couple of days. I do like three or four or five of them at a time, but I'm doing it on my 2013 MacBook Air. And when I go to the office the next day and I'm like, oh yeah, I better put my fingers in the home row position. I better practice, you know, using my baby finger to hit the P key and all that kind of stuff. And I mess up constantly when I have my hands in the normal position. Otherwise, if I'm not thinking about it, I can type fine. But but so I, I and that's an odd thing. And maybe that is the difference between the key travel, as you guys are talking about, and, you know, the, the older older style keyboard right so who knows i know yeah. it's a it's a i don't care enough to really like i just will buy the next mac whatever it is in fact i'm gonna my if i buy a mac tomorrow it'll be a 13 inch um, macbook pro because it'll have the the um the touch id and it'll have the touch bar and all that kind of stuff so i am i am sold on the touch bar i don't mm. think it's like 99.9 percent of the time i'm really even aware that the touch bar is there but it's super handy when i want to lock my computer when i get it from my desk which is a policy for us you know um and very and adjusting the volume by just sliding your finger back and forth those those are great experiences for me but um and the, the escape key is there in certain softwares so i don't uh, you know on the touch bar i mean like so i don't know why i need a physical key for that well it makes me feel good in a way that you know the butterfly keyboard does have its advocates like joe and you know that apple design is not crazy like they did something that pleases some people it doesn't happen to be my favorite and i mean i think you'll be happy when you if you do end up getting a 16 inch macbook pro the keyboard will probably feel more you know comfortable and uh you know home for you <laughs> i do want to mention that the reason why i mentioned the fact that we have 25 or so or maybe 30 of these macs at the office is only three of them had a have had keyboard problems huh. where we had to like you know you couldn't use the key you had to send them in for service so what does that tell you it's not a great I'd, ratio I'd, <laughs> yeah Still. i mean if you had said like 2500 or something it might be different <laughs> out of 25 isn't that good yeah well, it's like all right in the break room to celebrate Friday, we've put twenty-five cupcakes out there. Three of them will give you food poisoning. So, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll tell Best you from the point of view. 
I'll tell you from the point of view of somebody who supports Macs in, in, in all kinds of different environments, right, is not everybody is as careful. Like, a lot of them are, are literally typing in a sandbox, like you say. Like, how does how do you get dirt on your keyboard? Like, do you not, like, wash your keyboard every now and then? Or, like, you know what I mean, wipe it down? Or, like, are you are you eating corn chips when you're using your computer? How does it get dirty? How do you yeah, I, I think this is why, you know, in Star Trek The Next Generation, they use flat panels that are at an angle, mind you, so that yeah. the Cheeto dust just rolls right off and doesn't interfere with with key action yeah i don't know yeah it'd be interesting because my my ipad pro 12.9 inch the keyboard on the on the virtual keyboard in that is the same size as it is on a regular mac right so i haven't quite even tried touch typing there but it would be interesting to see once my brain gets trained into where the keys are and which finger to use i'm curious to see whether whether touch because typing on the glass is different like trust me but but is it possible can i write a novel on an ipad pro i wonder if people can i like the smart keyboards for the ipad i mean you know my tried to get my wife a case for the iPads that was, you know, more protective and had a sort of more MacBook style keyboard and she prefers the smart keyboard. So the physical keyboard, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the the case. Okay, cool. Cool. I have a Logitech one that I bought and I've parked it. I I was using it for a while, but uh, I don't like the way the the angle at which the the Mac or the iPad sits. But anyway, I like the new, I like the new um, one for the newer um, iPads where you can adjust the angle a bit more, right? Yeah. All right. Honey, what's happening in December? Besides Christmas. Yeah, well, a few weeks prior to Christmas on December 2nd, Apple is apparently hosting an event to honor apps and games on its platform, which is hmm. a little strange. Um, as noted here in this article from The Verge, Apple does come out with these lists. I think we probably diligently talk about them, uh, you know, once a year, around that time of year. But it's a little weird that they're doing an actual event. Um, I don't know if this is going to be like Apple Design Awards style event or cynically, I think, maybe to, to talk about these and say, you know, and, you know, eight out of 10 of these are available on Apple Arcade, you know, pre-subscribe. Yeah, I kind of wonder like, if that's what it's about, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of what, what the cynic in me has, you know, thinking about it. And again, no, you know, um, no ill will to the, the folks involved with it, people who work very hard on, on their apps and games. But just, it feels a little strange that something that would normally not have an event, like this uh, list of apps and games, is getting an event. And we didn't get an event for the 16-inch MacBook Pro, nor the AirPods Pro. It was just like, hey, they're out there, go buy them, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> If you got money, buy them. If not, they'll be there waiting for you. Cool. Yeah, it's a head scratcher. So once again, like uh, Simon likes to say, it was, it was, this pick was so nice, we, we both entered it twice. How do you say that? The pick's so nice, we picked it twice. Picked it twice. It's like New York, New York, right? Um, which I finally figured out what the reference of that was from. But uh, City's so nice, I named it twice. Um, yeah, so uh, Apple has a, it, an interesting perspective on, on some of the headline, headlines here. I'm talking about the Apple Developer App, which is called Developer App, not Apple Developer App. <laughs> um, and a couple of different speculations on it that uh, Apple has announced in, their, in a tweet about the, calling it renaming the WWDC app, which is what we're talking about, renaming it to the developer app and making it more useful to people year-round as opposed to just centered around the event, right? Because it's a, it's a decent app. It gives them an opportunity to talk about different things throughout the year, right? Um, but one of the other, I think uh, the um, TechCrunch, the headline says, Apple launches a dedicated mobile app for development communication. They haven't launched it. They just renamed it, right? So kind of wonder about that. But um, yeah, so I don't, have you guys taken it for a spin yet or you tried it out? Well, I, I had a really funny experience 
experience. I think as I heard uh, you guys talking about it, I tried to uh, update on the App Store, and I already had the WWDC app because I just attended right, yeah. my first WWDC this year, and uh, it wouldn't like I couldn't get it to update, and so finally I, I went and searched developer in the App Store, and it was there, but it said open like I already had it, right? And then I hit open, and I'm in the WWDC app, and nothing has changed. So I had a little couple chuckles about all that. that even Apple has App Store troubles when they're trying to release something. Nice, nice, yeah, yeah. I mean, I to be honest, with you, I haven't really spent a whole lot of time on it. But uh, my, my little caption here is a rose by any other name. Uh, you know, just giving it a different name doesn't make it a better app or whatever. But uh, interesting thing in the in the TechCrunch article, we've t- speculated about this many, many times. But according to them, or maybe according to Apple, there are twenty three million members of the developer account, developer Apple developer community. Did you guys catch that? Yeah, that's stunning. It's yes. a lot of registered members. And yes. I appreciate any efforts they're trying to make to do more outreach and communicate better with developers. I mean, I think those what were those tech events they used to have, they should do more of those. You know, I mean, like WWDC is too crowded. I got lucky this year, but, you know, I, I was wearing my, I, went, I entered the WWDC lottery and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Yeah. Um, my, and he was wearing it at the conference. Way yes. to go, Ricky. Yeah, there's photos of me and Tim with me sporting the <laughs> with shirt. The photos <laughs> of him standing next to Phil Schiller, or no, uh, to... Oh, Craig Federighi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Standing next to Craig Federighi, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wearing that t-shirt, which I think is hilarious. But but the thing about the tech events, and, and the, there was some speculation on Twitter about whether the name WWDC is going to go away, right? And it's just mm. become the Apple developer event or something like that. Or or are they going to get rid of WWDC altogether and just do tech events around the world? That said, you know, they had a... I think they've, they've had some tech events around the world where... I think I went to the New York one once, and I, I know I went to it, but, but I think that they're just as hard to get into as as WWDC sometimes, right? right. Even though they're free, right? And they're generally free, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we had the Apple TV, was it TV or watch event we had in Toronto that a lot, whole bunch of us went to. Um, but sometimes these tech events are just as hard to get into, right? Do you guys find not find that? Yeah, I don't remember how I got into the, I want to say it was 2015 Apple TV uh, tech event that they had. Yeah, I think that was the one where they, I think they had a, they probably had a ton of seats because they, I think they really wanted to get us behind that, right? How, what's the developer communicate like in LA? Like, is it, is there a lot of, is there a lot of competition for airtime in LA, Ricky? It's really interesting. Um, you know, I feel like in a big way, a lot of the air is just sucked up by Bay Area. And so, you know, even though LA is a huge city and ostensibly should have tons of different, um, you know, meetups and stuff, that a lot of it is, you know, very, um, you know, heavy on web stuff. So that there's a JavaScript meetup that's very popular, JS LA. Um, and it's kind of funny, like people come from other cities and they're like, wow, because a lot of companies in Santa Monica and on the West side host and, you know, big kind of fancy office buildings. And in some cases they want you to sign an NDA to like, go to the meetup. Yeah. I'm like, no, thanks. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. There is a Swift meetup. Um, I was going uh, to one for a little while that had some of the people from Corellia software um, who did Sandbox and some other things. Uh, nice people. Um, Bridger Matthews, uh, who uh, has done various things. He worked on the, um, uh, what was it, the SICP app for a while. And then he's got a new thing now where you can sort of like do a shared whiteboard. Um, I met him at one of the meetups out here. 
he's a really nice guy. So I, you know, here and there I've met people, um, and you know, made friends. And so I can't complain too much. I mean, certainly there are people in small towns and, you know, other places that don't have, you know, as big a community, but I do have a little jealousy for like Seattle ex-coders and these kind of groups that just seem really well established and, uh, you know, cared for and heavily attended and this kind of stuff. Um, you know, we could use more of that in LA. So for perspective, what's the population of LA? Oh, I think it's uh, 10 million. Let me see. Wow. Real time fact check here. Yeah, it's the largest city in the United States or North America, isn't it? Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, prob- probably New York. Hmm. Well, he looks at uh, the Seattle metropolitan area is only 3.9 million mm-hmm. by comparison. So it's it's definitely uh, a little bit of a difference of like what sort of industry is around there, right? Um, Silicon Beach, I think LA gets uh, a lot. Hmm. Um, Snap, I think, from uh, Snapchat fame, I think is down there. I'm not mistaken. Where's Silicon Beach? Is that LA, you said? Yeah, I thought it's it was like LA. Venice, essentially, is where it yeah. used to be. It's, I mean, Santa Monica, Venice area, but like particularly Venice, like Google has moved in there notoriously. Uh-huh. Like there's there's some people, they took over the old, uh, uh, what was it like a, where they made the Spruce Goose? What's the name of that? Uh, you know, Howard, Howard Hughes's Hughes. airline company. I can't remember. Anyway, so it's, it's Howard like, Hughes's company. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a historic building and Google's in there now. And, oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. There, there's some people moving in there. And I, my joke is that eventually the Bay Area, you know, it's just going to connect all the way from uh, Los Angeles to the Bay Area, just all along the coast. We'll just have tech, uh, you know, everywhere because they're already, you know, there's people moving down into Santa Cruz from Bay Area. And so it's going to keep going and connect eventually with Los Angeles. Well, the reason why I sort of flagged that name is one of my favorite softwares just before uh, Photoshop came out was called Digital Darkroom. And it was from a company called Silicon Beach Software. Huh. Yeah, so that's why I, did. I, I never knew where they were. And maybe I'm guessing they were there. According to Wikipedia, and this, you know, this maybe has to do with like what is the greater metropolitan area versus mm-hmm. the, you know, actual metropolitan area. So it says the 2018 estimate for New York is 8.4 million, uh, Los Angeles, just about 4 million. But, you know, that's weird because when I grew up in Houston, like it says, I always thought it was 3 to 4 million in Houston. And here it says 2.3 million for Houston. So, mm. you know, it's uh, your mileage. Yeah, there's a couple theory. of million in the Toronto area, I think, if I'm not mistaken, a little bit more than that, maybe for the GTA. Interesting. So speaking of large metropolitans, the next link here I've got is that uh, Apple is breaking ground or has broken ground in Austin, Texas, where they're doing some new stuff, development and machinery and stuff. Yeah, and this uh, post on their uh, uh, press release, I suppose, from November mm-hmm. 20th says, uh, begins production of all new Mac Pro. So it seems Ooh. crazy that they're just starting production. <laughs> they say it's going to be out by the end of the year, but uh, I don't know. Well, it's out by the fall, they said, right? Yeah. They've got a couple more weeks to go before fall is over. Yeah. Uh, preparing to ship the all-new Mac Pro to customers starting in December. We'll see. But they've got a picture of these people making shiny new Mac Pros. Mm. Oh, yeah. There they are. And there's a picture of uh, the, uh, on the press release of, of the states where um, Macs or Mac, Pro, or Mac Pro components are sources all, all across the United States. Interesting. And they took over, um, what is it, Freescale Semiconductor? And so I wonder if this is their old factory. Oh, did they? Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Well, it doesn't break and ground imply that they're putting a shovel in the ground and digging a hole? I don't 
don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I suppose it's different because this is talking about quite a few things together, right? So breaking ground on the campus, which I think we talked about some number of episodes ago in beginning production of the Mac Pro in the facility that, that Ricky was talking about. Right. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that that's the same place. I, I, they I, they could have just been like a aqua hire, or, you know, a patent grab or something when they bought that company. But they have made promises to, I lived in Austin before I moved to Los Angeles. And then uh, everyone in Austin is very excited about Apple moving in more. They've had support personnel there for quite a long time, but uh, they've promised to, you know, move a bunch of people and create, you know, however many ten thousands of jobs. And so, uh, yeah, it says this new campus that there's a rendering of in here. I don't know. Is that a, I guess it's a rendering. Um, it says that's going to house 5,000 employees, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's good that they're spreading out. I think it helps, you know, people uh, who are making tough decisions about whether to go to work for Apple uh, to have more, you know, choice to live in cities like Seattle or Austin that are, you know, more affordable than uh, Bay Area. Cool. All right. Well, we got it. We're almost halfway through our five hour show. <laughs> um, but which brings us to some of the things that Ricky's put in the, uh, in the follow up here. What you got for us? Uh, yeah, this is just quick things. Uh, I may picked, uh, swiftly dev and uh, there's uh, another one called a companion for Swift UI which is a for purchase app uh, I think for fifty dollars uh, but it's from Javier uh, Negro uh, Negro maybe uh, who has lots of good posts about Swift UI um, I ran across this in iOS Dev Weekly issue 429 um, and then there's also uh, you guys were talking about Swift UI and uh, you know how Swiftly dev was kind of a cheat sheet for Swift. Um, th- and then Tim had picked uh, the Swift UI cheat sheet in episode 273. Um, so uh, it made me think of this about Swift UI GitHub repo, which is basically just a big, huge readme that's tons of links. And there's a, you know, Jekyll site that just builds off the readme. Um, and this is from uh, Juan P. Catalan, uh, who's an iOS developer at 20 in Madrid. And uh, um, yeah, it's got a huge sort of roundup of stuff with videos, websites, extinction, extensions, all kinds of stuff um, for you. Books, courses, articles. Um, so if you're still uh, learning SwiftUI or you know looking for more resources, it's a good place to hit up. And uh, the a companion for SwiftUI app is in there. Cool. All right. Well, it brings us to the main part of the show here. I mean, you got something about our little friends here in the state in Toronto that I've talked about fast, but uh, what you got? Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the company I've joked about several times that we we've talked so positively so many times that they might as well be a, a sponsor on the show. Um, hashtag not a sponsorship. Uh, so the folks, the fine folks there at One Password uh, of Canadian uh, origin, have uh, as it says here, partnered with Axel Venture or continued growth. So Axel, the uh, venture capitalist, is investing two hundred million dollars U.S. for a minority stake in One Password, nice. and they'll be bringing you know some uh, some help to help grow the team with as noted here, started out with uh, the two founders mm-hmm. and has grown to 176 individuals. So there's um, definitely a lot to, to cheer about over there as they expand.
expand into um, further areas beyond just, you know, one password for, you know, consumers, such as you and I doing it for, you know, our own usage or for family usage. I think the business usage is sort of the, the big thing that, that really is going to help them grow and, and stay stable you know, sort of in the long term, I think. Yeah, there was a, a interesting talk by Dave Tier who, Dave Tier does pretty much their blog, I believe. Um, he does a lot of the posts on it. Uh, that um, he, it was a talk at Singleton, which is a conference that a lot of people have raved about over the years um, that uh, is no longer, well, maybe it's going to come back at some point in the future. I don't know. But there's a really good talk that uh, I posted on Twitter or, or liked on Twitter or I can't remember how it, I basically sat there and watched it. It's like a rather an hour long talk that he gave, Dave Tier gave, about um, being an indie developer and how they grew um, from just the two of them with an idea or several ideas actually um, to create one password back in the day, long be- even before iOS came out. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a really interesting talk. So I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. But yeah, congratulations to um, one password, as I said in a tweet from the podcast account um, this week. Uh, it's great. We're glad, to, we're glad to see these guys, uh, you know, exemplifying the goal, the, the, the I think the dream of, of any indie developer to kind of grow to this size. And um, there's a follow-up uh, uh, post here because there's been some speculation about how, you know, this kind of infusion of cash or whatever or, or operating capital will affect a company like one password you know small company gets lots of money and you know i guess maybe it's like an episode of, of silicon valley or something but uh, dave tier did a follow-up uh, called a love letter to dhh and others concerned about our recent funding announcement uh, that basically they don't plan to change the way they do things and and w- the reason why they do things and so on and so forth so also not sponsored by dhh not <laughs> oh yeah although um, we're open to base camp if you want to <laughs> sorry base camp if you want to sponsor just send us an email but um okay yeah it was um kind of interesting because there was this sort of event is sort of like a i don't know like a psycho uh, psychological test like a rorschach test mm-hmm. of like what do you see when you see this and uh mr dhh obviously comes from a, a very different perspective right so um it's been running base camp and everything has been i think fairly bootstrappy i don't think they've ever taken any um well that's the interesting anyway. thing like if you read this he, they took money from jeff bezos like jeff bezos is like a major shareholder in Basecamp, which i just or minor shareholder and it says you know non-controlling but i never knew that and uh he's you know dhh is very you know sort of infamous for railing against vc and funding and it's it was interesting to read this from dave and find out oh wow like jeff bezos is like a minority stakeholder in Basecamp, and so they talk about uh, Bezos, like they met with him a lot the first few, you know, uh, let's see. For the first few years after Jeff Bezos owns a minority non-control stake in Basecamp, the company that Jason and I co-own, for the first few years after purchasing that, Jason and I would meet or talk to him about once a year. It's probably been seven to eight years since we spoke with Jeff directly last. I don't know if that's some like, you know, seller's remorse happening here with uh, DHH that he sees, you know, one password going down a similar road and regrets his own decision. And Dave kind of, uh, you know, takes that on head on and talks about it in here. And, um, you know, it's an interesting uh, article. And I, I support 1Password sort of um, expanding and going after more enterprise customers. And, I mean, something I use and love and recommend to everyone who will listen. So, um, you know, I, I think you got to do the right thing for the company. And uh, he says, you know, they took them six years to settle on terms for this deal. And, uh, you know, that they, they want someone who's going to, you know, participate and help them with the sales and marketing and finance and, um, you know, that we're going to keep being more one passwordy than ever. So, you know, I feel very supportive of this. I don't know. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they'll. And there's a, a fair amount of folks who are worried about the now they need to be a unicorn and and grow crazy and then eventually flame out and be left picking it to pieces. I don't think this is that sort of thing. Um, it was sort of tickling my brain as to like what in the world? Why does this seem so familiar? And I realized why it was so familiar. This is very similar to the path that Atlassian took. Mm -hmm. Atlassian was pretty much, you know, profitable from the get-go and hadn't famously hadn't taken funding for such a long time. But they did take funding about five years prior to their IPO. And surprise, surprise, it was from Excel. Mm. And uh, it wasn't 200 million. um, But, you know, back in like 2014, 2015, 60 million was was a fair chunk of change, right? The market's a little different now. And that... Uh, not saying that's like the same case for one password, but in that case, it's helped get um, one of the uh, the venture partners from uh, Excel onto their board because they wouldn't be able to convince them otherwise without having some skin in the game. And it also allowed them as a company to let the employees cash out on their equity. So mm. um, I don't know if that's the case here, but it, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me, right? Like you can go this route of, you know, if you're thinking IPO, this gives you an opportunity to, to get some money off the table. If you're looking to get a particular board member because you're looking to expand in a certain direction, this could be a way to do that without sort of giving up everything. Uh, and I will say, uh, even though I don't have the, the link right in front of me, um, that this sort of whole path that Atlassian took was something that came to mind because I am a longtime listener of Acquired.fm, which is by uh, David Rosenthal and Ben Gilbert, who have covered venture capitalist sort of, you know, movings and shakings throughout the industry. I highly recommend it if you're even vaguely interested in that uh, particular sort of set of things. And I will find the episode where they cover the Atlassian IPO and put that in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Cool. All right. Right. Next up is real quick one is is uh, i don't know if you guys saw this but xcode 11.2 lasted on the app store for just a short while before apple pulled it and uh quickly replaced it so there's an article here about uh about that so yeah it was an issue about uh is it uh yeah so updating to 12.2.1 became mandatory i think it's actually further than that now but uh just an interesting little hit on this one if you guys saw it or not i didn't see that what was what was the problem that that happened to it uh there's a couple of things here he mentions uh just issues with with things like UI text field and um, collection view collection view low layouts were were buggy um, like as soon as you tapped on a UI text field uh, the app would crash and that kind of things um, and it would you know return a nil reference um, for some strange reason and I weren't really sure why but uh, yeah and then and then a few day hours or days later he tried to uh, push up a, a build to test flight he actually had a customer come and he couldn't couldn't get the app to run on the customer's on the client's phone they tried to push it up to test flight and and Apple itself had re- rejected uh, that uh, thing. It was an invalid tool chain using using uh, 11.2. So they quickly turned around and it's now 11.21. Or this is was, when was this written? Let's see, November 11th. So yeah, last week this this happened. I, I just thought it was interesting that that they had a version of the of Xcode that was out for a short while and uh, didn't last very long. Yeah, update update to 11.2.1. People, you have 11.2. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, you won't even put. 
when people publish a pill if you got it, right? If if it, if you can get it to load on people's devices as well, right? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So yeah, that was like, that was a nightmare where he talks about the client coming in and not being able to. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, that's happened though. Well, I can't tell you the number of times I've had that where the client comes to work on a, on a build and something doesn't work, signing doesn't work, or whatever. You know, it's not unusual. Like, embarrassing, of course, right? Like makes you seem like you don't know what you're doing. Right. So, Jaime, what you got news for us, wise on iTunes? Yeah, uh, this little bit of news comes from the fine folks at NeoN who say that Apple may be working on a successor to iTunes on Windows 10. Hmm. And if that has you terribly confused, as it caught my attention, obviously, um, remember that Apple killed off iTunes on macOS. So now you have mm-hmm. the uh, the whole thing split into into three, podcast app, music app, and Apple TV app. Um, pa- apparently, they never actually did that on Windows, which as somebody who's not a Windows user, I, I didn't know that. But there is a, uh, a job opening there uh, at Apple. So if you're interested in doing that sort of thing, you know, I guess you could still apply. It looks like it's still open to me. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it, I think it's kind of interesting from a not losing sight of, you know, other platforms, right? Like, I, I guess we don't normally think of, you know, Windows as being a, a major platform for apple's ecosystem but uh it's still you know the vast majority of folks use it right you know and so i think it's actually pretty interesting that that apple is continuing to invest in this because it, it makes a lot of sense right if you're looking to sell more you know music and apple music and apple tv subscriptions apple tv plus subscriptions it, it kind of makes sense that you would continue to invest in this so i think that's really neat and we did not talk about one of the things that uh, ricky had in the, in the notes but i think i saw something about somebody getting swift running on windows did i read that wrong Right. Yes, yeah. Uh, heroic sort of, uh, it was like a thousand patches, I think, to uh, uh, get Swift, uh, bringing Swift to Windows, porting by a thousand patches. And it's a talk from the 2019 LLVM developers meeting from Salim Abdul Rasul. So we will put that in the show notes. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, it makes sense that they're going to support the biggest operating system in the world, right? Yeah, and, and I do think that having things like Swift, available on other platforms um it, granted to be fair it is available on linux particularly on the server side but Certain I, I do is not every linux right i believe that's true right and it's it's definitely not ubuntu. a one-to-one hmm? i think ubuntu is the one that's available on yeah yeah uh, that particular distribution um I, I do think that having more technologies in general be usable on other platforms um, is a good thing i'm not saying it's going to be the the right answer in all cases notably on this show we've we've talked about um electron and and whether that is or is not something that will set your laptop on fire but <laughs> <laughs> or get you rejected from the app store lately yeah yeah <laughs> don't cheap out get the 64 gig 16 um, inch macbook pro trust me you want to run xcode slack and chrome at the same time you're, you're going to need it um but all kidding aside i do think that, that opening up these technologies is is generally a pretty good thing right i don't i don't see any real downsides to having them available uh, it may be that uh, similar to what was brought up in the um, the ask mtjc section of the show where yeah I, i'm not surprised that visual studio is better on windows and i'd not be surprised if you know apple's tools like swift are better on ios and mac os than they would be on others i do think it's pretty nice that things are available elsewhere as well oh all right so in our ever ever everything's follow-up eventually kind of talk we do talk about tech interviews a lot in fact i think we talked about them in the first bunch of podcasts um but uh, there's an interesting post here from a um developer named charlotte what can i say uh, about how you know she's encouraging people in general to not accept the status quo type tech interview where, you know, maybe you have to do some whiteboarding or you have to solve an, uh, an algorithm in 20 minutes or whatever. As an interviewer, I can tell you a lot of reasons why we ask people 
to do algorithms is not so much to see them solve the problem, but to actually see how they solve the problem. Um, but that said, I mean, I think that some people fall into the routine of, of you ask these questions and you ask, have them do this particular algorithm. Uh, her point is well seen by me in that the fact that is that no two developers are alike, and a lot of people have different. A lot of people bring different things to the to the table in terms of when you're hiring developers. In fact, I even named the podcast more than just code because it isn't just about writing code when it comes to building apps. There's lots of different you know skill sets you need you need to look for in people. But so her advice to her, her advice to you is you know don't be afraid to ask about the hire the, the interview process beforehand. She does sort of point out that some companies and I know some of them have people do multiple um, interviews like you know and that's a lot of time for someone to dedicate to getting a job. Um, admittedly, the companies I know who've done that are, are rather large and you want to work their kind of companies. But uh, just yeah, just sort of just don't take the, the the tech interview or don't take the job interview lying down kind of thing. Um, you know, just be be prepared to to say you know I'm you know I I know of one host on this podcast who will not do a whiteboard in a test in an interview. So yeah, there's there's lots of different ways to do this. And she ta- she points out that you can go to Glassdoor and uh, which is a website if you don't know about it where people compare salaries and things like that. But they'll also people have also reported on what the interview process was like at certain companies. So I think uh, Jaime, you've probably had the most experience with with interviews lately. Um, and I, I'm, I would guess, Ricky, when you go for your various freelance gigs, you must get interviews. Yeah, I mean, it tends to be a lot of referral uh, stuff. So you know, I'm sort of already have a foot in the door. But yeah, this this stuff gives me nightmares. Or you know, I, I read about people's accounts of having done this. I mean, you know, the most famous, obviously, I guess, is probably Max Howell. You know, who wrote Homebrew and uh, mm-hmm, had the mm-hmm. experience at Google where they were asking him to like diagram a binary tree or something like this. And, right. You know, he couldn't do it and they, you know, they didn't get the job. But then, you know, he's like, I have software running on all of your developers' machines over there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's part of the sort of culture bias and stuff, too, that makes it hard for people to sort of break into tech. And, you know, it's assuming a certain sort of, uh, you know, it feels like the developer equivalent of like an IQ test, right? Where you have to have the cultural knowledge in order to do well. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in general, I think it should be about pairing and sitting down and writing software with people and, you know, being able to talk about your process, looking at code. And, uh, you know, so that's why, you know, I'm, I'm okay with people using GitHub as their resume and this kind of stuff, because I think it's probably more fair mm-hmm. in the long run. But, you know, even with that, there's sort of, uh, you know, it's easier for certain types of people to break into open source as well. So, you know, I think in the end, you know, I really respect companies who are willing to take people on and train them in their, you know, method of software development and uh, mentor them into, you know, being better developers. So, you know, take people at all stages. Like, you know, I think people make a lot of too much about junior, senior, and, you know, typically people are junior in some regards and senior in others in my experience. Yeah, I I do think that that different options for technical interviews would be good because you, as Charlotte's point out points out here that you'd give more opportunity for folks to put their best foot forward and, and not be necessarily pigeonholed or siloed into one particular way of doing things. Um, I'll give you 
um, a pretty great example. Um, when I was interviewing not too long ago, um, I guess a couple months ago now, within the same week, I'd had interviews at a couple different companies. And I've been a software developer in this industry for a little over 15 years now. And as a professional who's been in the industry for 15 years, I went between the two sort of polar extremes of how did I feel about my ability and worth as a developer mm -hmm. from these interviews. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense that on the one hand, on Monday, it can be, oh my gosh, I am completely unqualified to be doing what I do. What's going on here? And on the other end, be like, I am a god on earth. Like, everybody <laughs> should bow down to my <laughs> my elite hacker really? skills. Okay. It, it's, 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 it's lunatic uh, sort of interviewing, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense that the same individual should experience this sort of like all the spectrum there within the same week. Granted, it, like as I mentioned, these are different companies. You can sort of gauge how I feel about, you know, one style versus another, but it's it's problematic, I think, to say, oh, well, you know, this is clearly the only way that we could evaluate candidates. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I have a, a sheet of uh, questions that I sort of work from. And um, every time I'm in an interview and somebody says something interesting, I actually write that down and it becomes a question in the next in a future interview because it's something you know interesting that somebody said to me that I didn't know. I, I often learn when I'm interviewing people stuff uh, about things the way other companies work and that kind of stuff. And um but I never try to do the same interview twice, you know. Um, and I, and one of the one of the developers managers I work with has an interesting um, way of interviewing people. When he asks a tech question, he sort of says, rather than you do the coding, tell me how to do it. Yeah. And he goes up to the whiteboard and he does the exercise, right? So and you instruct him on what to do. So it's kind of like he works with you to sort of get you, rather than making you sweat the bullets, he sweats the bullets for you, sort of thing. And it's an interesting, interesting technique. Well, and that's also you know testing how people can teach. And are they able to you and know. communicate about what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's that's nine times. You know, especially when you're working on a large team, your communication skills are often part should be part of the interview as well, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, Ricky, you're up. What you got for us now? Well, uh, I was thinking about uh, Tim here. Uh, voice control. Uh, I heard on Back to Work they were talking about uh, this tweet using voice control in cold weather, and uh, I really appreciate this. Sentiment. For those of us up in the, up in igloos in Canada? Yeah, yeah. Just hit me that voice control created for the vision impaired is a perfect way to use an iPhone in winter and with gloves on. Another mm. reminder of the truth of Gruber's maxim, accessibility for some often proves better for everyone. Can't wait right. to try this out. Right. So, but I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, things that we think of, of as accessibility, um, you know, are almost universally uh, applicable and help the user experience uh, no matter what. And I mean, this was something at WWDC that I was just really excited about and felt mm -hmm. sort of uh, you know proud for Apple having you know released and it was it made a great demo. I mean, it was one no, of it's the like the Blade Runner scene from where he's examining the photo, the original Blade Runner, right? So I use voice I use voice control and voiceover all the time personally. Um, you know, like I, I if I want to listen if I want to read a web page but it's like treacherous outside, I'll I'll turn on voice control and I'll you know have the the, the, the iPhone read the page to me right while I'm walking along. And I've used I have a, a relative in the family, obviously, who's, who's you know, she's got a medical condition and she, at some point in the future, will not be able to use a keyboard. So things like voice control really sort of open up that uh, that world for people, right? Yeah. And I think it's it really is a big jump in, you know, what you could do 
um, I guess voiceover was the previous technology, and so mm-hmm. voice control is really a big step forward there. And I'm I think it's sort of text to speech as well, or speech to text, right? Yeah. Dictation. Yeah, um, but it's it's being able to like target things on the screen and just saying you know click on this part of the screen and stuff, where instead of you know go to the next thing, go to the next thing. Now click. So yeah, I think you know it feels like a big jump forward. And I mean, you've been using it on your phone. I saw you had it in the accessibility shortcut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's cool about it? Well, I, I really like that part of the the thing. And thank you for reminding me about it. But um, you know, like for those of you who don't know, you can say show grid, and it basically puts a nine point or twelve point grid on your overlay on your phone, and you can say you know focus in on area number three, or maybe there's a button there you want to press, and and as it zooms in uh, on that area, you can then have it click a button or you know enter a text field or something uh, that may be in that particular region of the screen. So if you can imagine just looking at your phone and telling the device where you want to you know have it some sort of interaction imagine you like like wearing gloves and you can't use your hands i hadn't thought about doing that but i should i should try you um and so i have it set up as an accessibility shortcut i, I triple click on my on the side button and i bring up a menu and i can either magnify or i can use voiceover or i can or i have added voice control there we, i think voice control used to be zoom previously in previous os's but um or it may still be there but yeah the voice control sort of makes it possible for you to use your phone without just by talking to it of course you know you don't want to do this in public you know seem like an idiot but if you are Im- physically impaired you can you can navigate the device without having but just using your voice right yeah. that's kind of cool yeah, and just a very direct sort of interface too you know instead of yeah. you know i think voiceover was the previous thing and it just it was a little bit more sort of clunky to especially navigate and move around the screen and sort of isolate areas like you were talking about so you yeah. know I, I think you know just removing barriers between and you think about you know it's not just people who are physically impaired it's people with like rsi and you know mm-hmm. other kind of issues that you know just make typing not great or using the mouse not great so mm-hmm. yeah, i was listening to somebody talk about uh, accessibility on on i think probably on spark podcast uh, last week and they were talking about the point that you know prosthetics right like basically things that augment your your physical body a lot like a large number of us wear prosthetics we don't even think about it and that's in the form of eyeglasses right you know so it's not not everybody's a spring chicken like jaime right so yeah, and as we were talking about earlier, the Apple Watch is, you know, taking on some of this functionality and stuff. So wearable yeah, computing, yeah. like, has a lot of promise here to really sort of, yeah. you know, level experiences. Cool. All right, well, that brings us to the picks part of the show. And, of course, all of us have multiple picks. We were all, we've all channeled Greg Heo, and we've got, like, so many picks, we don't know what to do with them all. So, all right, so I guess I'm first since I put my first pick in. So I, on Sunday, discovered this tool from a friend of the show, uh, Andre uh, Drew, I think he goes by, uh, who's the host of the Ray Winner like podcast posted this on Facebook about a new social network that promises to be you know the the anti fake news uh, social network taking on Facebook and Twitter. It's it's created by the founders of um, uh, Wikipedia. And it's called WT Social, so WT dot Social. And uh, I've got a link in the show notes here. That if you click on it, you will instantly be connected to my account. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the, the next thing in terms of um, social networks. I think last time I looked at it was a couple of days ago. It was like 180,000 people already. So it's uh, growing leaps and bounds. And uh, I think we've talked about other social networks in the past from from people of various reputes. Uh, but this one, you know, I'm a big supporter of Wikipedia. We use Wikipedia all the time in our show. You know, every year when they have their, their funding drives, I, I pay some money to them because I, I believe in the service. It's sort of the Encyclopedia Galactica come to life. Um, and I'm hoping that they can figure out a way to 
get us all off of uh, Facebook and onto something much more friendly. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. A lot of people are, are boycotting Facebook and stuff like that, but I can't boycott Facebook because my family's on there and that seems to be the only way that they will communicate with me. So um, if I want to keep in touch with the rest of my family, my extended family, that's the, the tool we have to use until I can get them all switched over to, you know, we've looked at, what's the other one that uh, was taking on Twitter, the federated one, um, Mastodon, right? Right. Signed up for Mastodon. That kind of went mm-hmm. nowhere. It was, a, I mean, not nowhere, but I mean, it's, it's kind of growing, I guess. Um, but there was another one, another social Diaspora one. is another one that was sort of more aimed at Facebook, I think. And Yeah, uh, there was one, two, I have to look on my phone here to see. App.net, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, oh, app.net. Yeah, yeah, that's, of course, mm. the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, come, come, microblog. Um, no, here, let me see if I can find it. Probably and then there's micro.blog, too. Shout out to Manton. You know, I've tried all kinds of micro. I have micro.blog on my phone. Ella yeah. was one of them that came out a while ago. Peach was one that came out. Right. Um, oh, uh, Vero. Is that the one? Vero, yeah. That was the one I created see, by, by a, a question, a guy with questionable repute. But, uh, hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to give this WCT social thing a try. I posted our last episode on it, so we'll see see how it floats. Yeah. And this is spinning out of Wiki Tribune, which is this thing that Jimmy Wales and company mm-hmm. did to try and be a Wiki-based news platform. And so uh, yeah, that's why the WT. Um, and it's an interesting model where you can just pay $13 and join, or you can invite people. And when they accept the invitation, then you get access. So it's interesting. Sort of, they're trying to have a viral, I guess, model to get people onto the network. Either, you know, you pay or you invite your friends. So one of my friends who I've been, you know, one of my oldest friends, actually, um, was questioning whether or not this actually is something that could fly. And I just sort of said, well, you know, there's only one way to find out. We just have to add, invite as many people as we can and see if it if, if it can go anywhere. And, you know, um, you know, the old once bitten, twice shy thing about Facebook. Um, hopefully this uh, we can keep it, keep our, you know, come at it with an informed from an informed position to see if it's going to work or not. And uh, it does. I mean, I use I use LinkedIn a lot now these days because, you know, it's a good place to post things and, and you know, find out what my colleagues are up to. Right. Um, I know it's a, become a recruiter, you know, um, nightmare. Yeah. A recruiter. What do you call it? Uh, yeah. They're, they're just sort of ample, like amb- the ambulance chasers of, of, of finding resources, I guess. But uh, I ignore those people mostly. Um, I'm more about, you know, connecting with people that I've actually worked with or actually know, um, you know, colleagues and that kind of stuff. So celebrate each other's work and, you know, share share information with each other. So, so yeah, it's, uh, I'll have to give this uh, the old college try. Have you had a look at it, Jaime, at all? Or I haven't. I have, I have not. Um, and I think possibly because of the list of apps you mentioned where uh, I'm pretty sure I still have an Elo account because... I know I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get emails every once in a while that somebody forwarded or liked my post or whatever it is that, that people do. And um, probably you and Greg Hio are like the only people <laughs> that I'm connected to on Peach, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Which I think I deleted the app, so I probably got to reinstall it. And Every now and then I go in, once a year I go in and go, is this thing on? <laughs> and nobody replies. So that tells you what, what's going on on Peach, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's where the like exclusivity here might be an asset, right? Like making people feel a little bit more precious about their WT social account because they had to invite people or pay to get in. And so also keeping the riffraff yeah. out there. But, you know, people forget about how Facebook started where 
it was only for Ivy League people at the beginning and all this other kind of stuff. So Yeah, my niece who was in at university here in Toronto for I was working on a social networking app. She says, Oh, you gotta try this thing called the Facebook and so I joined it early, early on but uh, and watched it grow out of control too, right? So. Right. The idea of like creating artificial scarcity to like make people value it more. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, and, and you know, it's sort of like that that left turn that we were talking about earlier with when we were talking about one one password. I think, you know, Facebook was great until they decided, you know, we could probably make some money with this thing. And, uh, you know, they, they got into ads and then they served that whole algorithm in. Like, I remember, you know, if you posted something, I would get, definitely see it on Facebook. And now it's like, I don't know if I see it or not. I don't know how often you guys are in posting, but, you know, I post, a, I post the podcast there every week. And, uh, you know, I probably post, you know, throughout the week on Facebook for friends and family and stuff. And, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Like, I know I'm connected to a lot of people on these networks and I don't hear from them a lot. And I wonder if that's indicative of the fact that people don't use social networking as much as I do. And, well, and this idea stuff. of getting like normal users to pay to boost their posts is just sort of repellent. To yeah, me. that's I ridiculous. Mean, yeah, I hate yeah. that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, charge the companies, but like normal people shouldn't be, you know, seduced yeah. into paying money to let their friends see the stuff they're posting. Yeah. But would people pay like, I mean, notwithstanding this particular thing you just mentioned, but would people pay to use Facebook or, or Twitter? Like, I you don't know, think like so. Cable um, access or whatever, like, like we're just talking about Disney Plus and Apple Plus. and Other than to advertise, right? And so this is the, you know, I think that they've been very clever in convincing people that everyone has a personal brand and needs to, you know, promote themselves and therefore should pay to advertise. I mean, I think that's part of the whole idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, no, I mean, I don't I don't think it would fly. I mean, I think they would have done it if it would have worked. Yeah. So, by the way, this this tip just in, I just posted this one a little while ago, um, uh, a tweet from Erica Sadoon, again, coming back to the sort of social networking thing, Twitter kindly t- tells me about a few people that I follow regularly that I don't necessarily see on Twitter, but uh, I got an email box landed here talking about uh, Erica, Sa- Erica Sadoon's uh, tip about taking charge of those XIPs. And she explains the whole idea behind XIPs are basically zips that are signed by Apple, and that's how we get our Xcode. And one of the challenges I was talking with one of our Mac deployment people about Xcode is that, um, you know, you, you have to download it. And it's a nine gigabyte file. It takes a while to download. And then you have to expand it. And then you have to copy it through applications folder. And so all of these steps take more and more time. So by the time, you know, like it's, a, it's such a challenge to get it, expand it, whatever. Um, but what she points out, though, is that the archive utility, which would be used to expand these uh, XIPs, I don't know how you say that, zib, maybe? I don't know. Um, you can choose which directory you want it to go into. Normally, it goes into the same directory as the archive, which is why it expands into your downloads folder. And then you have to copy it like an animal over to to your um, uh, applications directory. Um, but uh, And you can change it, but then it does that for every single zip you get or from then on, uh, which may or may not work for you. But there's an interesting uh, command line um, using the user bin zip XIB, XIP, sorry, user bin XIP file. Um, there's a command line you can put in there to, to say, you know, you CD into your applications folder and then you uh, run this XIP expand uh, option and you tell it where the file is originally and it will, it will unarchive it and it'll place it into the directory which you are currently in um, which is cool and another little option she's pointed out here is that you can uh, precede it with time and I did this earlier today just try it out and uh, it tells you exactly how long it takes to to uh, expand the file how, to, how long it takes to do the system stuff and how long it takes to do the user stuff that you normally don't see when you use the archive unarchive thing and uh, somebody here at the end of the, the, the post uh, she's posted an update that uh, somebody's created an, an Apple script to do the same sort of thing. I tried the Apple script out. It wouldn't work on my Mac at work, but then 
we have a managed Mac, so I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to run Apple scripts. But um, yeah, so uh, I did try out the this command and it worked flawlessly. It uh, didn't give me the option to create a name for. I would like it if there was a name option. Maybe I should man the file and find or man the, the app and find out. Um, but yeah, this is a really cool way of uh, expanding Xcode in once, you know, and without having to do the extra sep- sec- second step to move it. So right. cool beans. Comments, questions? Concerns? No, it's, those command line flags are helpful. You have the output archive and you can tell it mm-hmm. which path to write to, which sure. is handy. And my last one here is just a quick pick, uh, a quick thing about um, certificates. I don't know if you if you know this or not, but back in the day, there was a, I forgot who it was who wrote the, maybe Keith Stroud and Smith wrote a, a quick look extension for the finder that would let you space bar on, you know, select a, a certificate and space bar and then and have a quick look version of it. But uh, that feature is now built into the OS. So if you ever have a certificate and you don't remember what it's for, or if it's a CSR or something like that, it's just generically named. Uh, if you're in the finder and you just hit the space bar with that file selected, it will actually read the file to you or give you a vis- visual view of what the file is made up of. And um, so you can tell, you know, what it was, when it's going to expire, who it's for, that kind of thing. So just a little quick trick there on quick looking certificates in the finder. Quick look all the things. Quick all the things. Yes. My, my space bar is going to wear up before my escape key will. All right. Um, Jaime, you're up. Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly talked about it already in the sort of the follow-up section, but I, I would recommend folks go go update your apps, get the, uh, assuming you have the WWDC app and, yeah. and get it turned into the transformed Pokemon evolution style into the Apple developer app. Uh, it does support dark mode. Um, it does have a WWDC tab. So I don't know if they'll rename the conference in the future, but uh, at the very least, it will give you info like, uh, I guess, shadow pick here that they've got the news for the Apple, what is it? Hour of Code? Is that what it's called? Yes. Well, the, the education. App, the app closed up on. Computer Science Education Week and Hour of Code. Yeah. So those are coming up uh, December 1st to the 15th. So get your family out there if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And that sort of news is certainly the kind of stuff that, you know, I try to surface on this show because if you're like me, you probably have gotten them only as emails to your, you know, Apple developer account email. And sometimes they end up in the spam folder. You never see them. And hopefully you'll be able to see them on a regular basis here in this app. Interesting. It doesn't remember my sign-in. Somebody else pointed that earlier today. Oh, it, it gave me the... I'm using uh, one password, by the way, to sign in. I think it gave me the option. It's like, do you want to use this Apple account? I'm like, sure. That's the right one. Really? Huh. Yeah. So you were, you were not signed in? Is that what happened to I you? I just signed in now using one password. Our friends over oh. at the Agile Bits. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Sign me out too, but I'm still able to look at the stuff. So. And it finally has updated now. Well, because I'm, I'm, I know that when, um, like if you're at WWC, for instance, you picked your favorites and it would, uh, it was based on, it would remember based on your Apple ID what you chose, right? Right. Yeah. I see continue watching, but I, oh yeah, it's got my favorites too. So I guess they're still saved locally somewhere. Core data. Maybe. But if you click on the WWDC one, you see the schedule from, you can click on, your, click on your favorites and see all the stuff that you starred. Yeah. Yeah. It's all still in there, even though it's telling me I need to sign in in the account tab. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I guess it's still saved cool. locally. Yeah. Hey, so you, you listened to the show last week. You know, I was talking about the that new um, attributes inspector that I stumbled across in working yeah, on UID. Yeah, yeah. That's Do you remember really hearing handy. about that at WWC? Yeah, but I mean, a lot of that stuff they were just going over really quickly. But uh, yeah. I agree, it's it's easy to forget about when you're working on the canvas that you just need to click that extra uh, little sidebar mm-hmm. icon for the right, and then you know you get a lot more information. And it is. But was that stuff there before? You remember? Yeah, yeah. It's oh, been there. Okay. It's just you know I think it was so much information to take in all at once and you know they they went really quickly through a lot of those demos um and you know but they didn't maybe bring as much attention on that as they could have in the some of the sessions i mean they had a lot to cover obviously but um you know it really is very cool 
to have not only instant feedback and sort of a live preview, but then also, you know, more visual app style tools to manipulate the interface, you know, simultaneously, like having both of those together and having it live update the code. It really is like great for teaching and learning. Swift UI is, you know, just being able to see the code that it writes as you change the, the visual yeah. options. All right, Ricky. Well, you, you've, you've certainly beat Greg Heo on your first uh, first well, official posting my, here. I'm telling myself that I'm taking all Mark's uh, picks from past episodes and pulling oh, them like all the last into two, one. five years, you mean? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> just collecting so. them all and, and binging them all at the moment. Right, Binge yeah. So I'm just burning some of uh, Mark's karma picks here. All right. Um, so starting with SwiftUI and speaking of learning SwiftUI, um, Paul Hudson, uh, Two Straws on Twitter, has, of course, Hacking with Swift, wonderful site. And uh, on there is 100 Days of SwiftUI. It's currently on day 59, which he tweeted about this morning. Um, just, you know, great way to learn. Paul's a great guy, very uh, sort of open and inviting. And like for people coming into it like me, it's, uh, you know, really nice to have people like him and uh, Dave from iOS Weekly just sort of, you know, welcoming people and trying to share knowledge. Um, so 100 Days of Swift UI is the sequel to 100 Days of Swift. Uh, he's also got a free 300 plus page online book, Swift UI by example. And uh, so second pick, sort of segueing uh, iOS Dev Weekly, uh, issue 430 came out and there's a bunch of great links in there. Uh, Dave did a survey about how people keep up to date with iOS development. And so that uh, survey results are in. And so if you're curious how your fellow developers are learning about uh, iOS development other than listening to the More Than Just Code podcast, uh, you Which can check those been, out. Right? Yeah, Erica Sadoon has a post in here about My Enemy, the Minimap. And uh, as someone else who's not a big fan of the Minimap, I enjoyed reading that. Yeah, what was um, her, I didn't get a chance to read that. What were her main points there? Well, just that like it promises to be more useful than it is. And I mean, Sublime Text, you guys talked about it when you know, the feature initially came out, but uh, Sublime Text, which is a text editor I use all the time, uh, was famous for the mini-map, and I, I never used it. I found it sort of annoying and just in my way, and I always disable these things in all of my code editors. Um, she says in here, I've spent some time recently considering exactly why it is I hate the mini-map so much. It's not just that it takes up valuable horizontal space, although to be honest, it's mostly that. If it did a better job to help me navigate or conceptualize my code, I wouldn't resent that space. Rather, I get little out of it, and it's a blurred, colorful, distracting mess for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it boils down to how much you like using the keyboard to navigate around your text files versus something visual. If you'd really rather just click with the mouse, then the minimap is great. It's super. But I mean, I've been using, you know, home and uh, page down and page up and end forever. And, you know, on the MacBook, you can just hold down the function key and use the arrow keys and get the same functionality. Or, you know, in some apps, it's the command key instead. So, uh, you know, I just never understood why you would want the minimap uh, in the first place. And, uh, yeah, so. Uh, but Isn't it kind of sort of like to augment what you do with the jump bar? Like a lot of people don't use a jump bar either, right? Right. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, the same thing. It's about like, you know, I mean, Apple's this long heritage. I mean, being the people who sort of, you know, established the GUI as a thing of letting people have multiple ways to navigate around and uh, particularly using the mouse. And so it's always been a very mouse friendly operating system. And so it makes sense that their code editor would be very mouse centric as well. But, you know, I mean, I, I just I agree with her. It's like that's valuable real estate. Um, but maybe if you have a huge monitor, it's, you know, if you're using a 27 inch iMac, it's probably awesome. I don't know. Um, right. So, uh, 
there's SwiftPM Catalog is out, which is sort of a Mac OS interface on top of SwiftPM library that Dave put out, uh, which helps you search and find uh, Swift packages. Uh, there's an NS Hipster post on secret management in iOS, uh, which is interesting and kind of funny. Um, there's a post about custom attribute uh, on NS attributed string on iOS, uh, a post about SwiftUI architectures, a video from NS Screencast about Swift 5's result type, and videos from Mobile Optimized 2019 in Minsk, including a talk from Dave, uh, making your app feel at home on iOS 13. Cool. So right. my third pick is I accidentally uncovered a nationwide third pick, scam. Greg, no, three picks. Yes, there's, there's even a fourth pick, but this is the third one. I accidentally uncovered a nationwide scam on a- Airbnb, and this is an article in that's just fascinating and a really fun detective story and also a good example of how law enforcement is sort of behind the times with all of these sort of gig economy apps and websites like Airbnb and how basically Airbnb has no verification whatsoever of anyone on Airbnb. And uh, the scam here involves people uh, booking a place and then when you're about to check in, they tell you the plumbing has burst or there's some you know reason why you can't uh, go to the space that you booked. And so then they send you to another space that uh, typically is bigger, but also, you know, gross and ill-maintained. And, uh, you know, then uh, it gets into the whole thing about how difficult it is to cancel with Airbnb and how you often forfeit some money. And then um, you have to really, you know, there's one woman who was a criminal lawyer and she managed to get a full refund, but no one else did. So uh, just heads up if you're booking Airbnbs and the person calls you and says you got to go to a different one or refuses to let you into the place that you're supposed to go, just cancel. Cancel immediately and try and get a full refund and then go stay at a hotel um, or at least book a different Airbnb that's not the same person. But these people had a huge network of uh, fake Airbnb uh, couples. And uh, yeah, it's a fun read. I I recommend everyone reads that. I stayed in an Airbnb at WWDC and it was not a nightmare, but uh, you know, anyway, I feel feel better having read this. And uh, you know, the more... The nightmare for me at WWDC was, I stayed in an Airbnb on Santana Row, but we had to check out before the conference was over, and so we had to take our, our baggage with us, oh. and there was nowhere to put our baggage on the Friday, and they wouldn't let us, it wouldn't let me in after lunch because I still had my baggage with me. Whoa. Yeah, so I got I got burned out of half a day of uh, fun and excitement at WWDC. Yeah, well, there's we could have a service uh, for the last day of WWDC, just uh, have lockers. They used to do that, you know, when they were in, when they were at Moscone back when I went in 2010 and 2011, they used, used to mm-hmm. be able to bring your bags and they had a whole corral area um where they would let you keep your bags but i think that was wasn't that before it was before i think like the london bombings and a couple of other places like that and that's when they started bringing the dogs in and all kind of stuff so that people could you know blow us up right yeah yeah that was wild getting sniffed by dogs on the way in but um Hmm? oh i remember the dogs at wwdc yeah that was uh, yeah they had badges but we couldn't get them yeah but yeah i think i think i I understood the whole idea behind why they wouldn't let us leave our bags you know because if you just think about it like that's just you know yeah and liability and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah yeah, exactly all right so final pick number four what's up greg and mark um (laughs) renovate uh or renovate app uh, is an automated dependency manager that i use uh with uh, javascript projects primarily but it does other languages as well um has been acquired by white source 
which is really good. Uh, Reese Arkins, the developer behind Renovate, is a really nice guy and heavily involved in the JavaScript package manager community, among other things, and um, just really accessible. And whenever I used it on a project, he was always right there with support and stuff. And so I'm very happy for Reese that he has found a good home for Renovate. I was worried about Renovate because uh, GitHub purchased Dependabot, which is an all rival automated dependency update solution. And so if you're creating repos on GitHub, you might have gotten offered to um, install Dependabot Preview. And I have used it and it works fine. Uh, I'm accustomed to Renovate now. So, um, you know, I sort of prefer it and it does things like particularly on projects. Uh, Gatsby is an example where there's a bunch of different packages that all come from the same project. Um, React is another one where it will pull them into one pull request instead of opening a bunch of separate pull requests and Dependabot opens a bunch of different ones currently. And Renovate also works on GitLab, so and possibly Bitbucket as well, but uh, definitely GitLab. And uh, so I use it there as well. So very happy that Renovate's uh, future and funding seems secure now. And as a result of this, it's now completely free uh, on all platforms, including private repositories. So hooray for that. Another happy uh, funding story. Hooray. Alrighty. Well, I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, where would they find you? I'm on Twitter. It's at Dev of the Hair. Right. And Ricky Delavega, if people want to get in touch with you, where would they find you? Uh, best is my website. It's rdela.com, R-D-E-L-A.com. Alrighty. And as I say every week, my name is Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll say bye-bye. 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 This is Friend of the Show, Jonathan. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Now stick around for the after show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Scene, which is this part you never hear us say on the show. Well, very rarely, I guess. Huh? You get to see the behind-the-scenes part of that. Are you yeah. singing the theme song for us, Ricky? More than just code. More <laughs> than just code. One of the best things, I didn't get to mention this earlier in Dave's uh, rebuttal or you know love letter in his own words to uh, DHH and other mm-hmm. people worried about them uh, taking Excel's money, is uh, he quotes RuPaul here. <laughs>
oh, yeah. <laughs> close to the end, and my wife and I watch RuPaul's Drag Race. And uh, so, because this is the end of the show now, and I'm not worried about it, he says, I had RuPaul in the back of my mind telling me, don't f*** it up. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> hilarious, Dave, and I'm so glad you put that in there. Uh, just makes me love you even more. One thing that's curious about this, and Jaime actually said this when we were talking about it, he put this one paragraph here uh, where it ends with, take some money off the table. He put it in there twice in the article, and I'm not sure if that's intentional or if he like moved it and then just left it in the other place. But it's the one where he says, we sold a small part of the company to Excel for a minority non-controlling interest, and minority non-controlling interest is bolded in one password with no hidden strings attached. In return, we got access to some really smart people, and we were able to take some money off the table. And you said that when you're talking about, what do you think he means by take some money off the table, Jaime? For me, that would mean that somebody would be able to cash out of equity. Um, it may uh, not be the case. I mean, he could okay. just be talk- using that as a way to talk about de-risking in general. Um, but I do think it's probably to let either the founders or hopefully the employees cash out if they want to and say, yeah, you know, I've been working here for X number of years. Would be kind of nice to be able to turn that equity into something, you know, get, get braces for the kids or buy a house or whatever, you know, how much it is. No, that makes sense because then he's quoting Jason Freed's post from 2016. Uh, Jeff Bezos bought a small piece of the company. I didn't ca- take the cash out of some fantastical desire to turn Basecamp into a rocket ship. Instead, his purchasing shares from me and my co-founder took a little risk off the table and gave us direct access to the brain of one of today's greatest living entrepreneurs. So, mm. um, yeah, so I guess he's sort of paralleling that structure with like take a, some money off the table instead of took a little risk off the table. But uh, yeah, Maybe that makes perfect sense. it's the reverse of leaving money on the table, which a lot of people, especially in our business, do, right? When you yeah. undervalue your work, right? Yeah, well, what I was thinking, you know, is this, if you are going after enterprise customers, this sends a like very strong signal, like we are funded, we're not going out of business, we're not going anywhere, we have $200 million in the bank, in fact. And, you know, I know that when I, I used to use Dropbox to sync 1Password and I switched over to 1Password servers, but, you know, one of the things that went through my mind at that point in debating between iCloud syncing or Dropbox syncing or the 1Password service was what happens if 1Password goes away or, you know, somehow they're not able to keep this, you know, service running, you know, and then am I going to have to switch back to iCloud or Dropbox or something? And this, I think, sends a really strong signal that, you know, it's not going anywhere and 1Password.com is going to be, you know, running strong for the foreseeable future. I have a question for you because how many records do you have in 1Password? This is a good one because I have so many clients and so I have a bunch. Yeah, so I'm in the same boat, right? I know it's over 10,000 here and I have to really to find out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I have have, uh, almost 1,500. I thought that was a lot. No. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. No, it's it's 1,146 according to this. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was way more. I win. (laughs) Yeah. How about you, Hami? That's a regular. I have 160. Whoa. (laughs) Granted, I don't have clients, so maybe that's part of it. But um, I don't remember when I started using Password. Certainly not super recent, but uh, not not a long, long time user. Well, you went to the vault yeah. before I did, or their their online vault before I did. But um, I did I did go to the service in in you know I did have to make the choice of like you know will this company continue to be around? And that's as an individual, so I can imagine that. 
uh, to Ricky's point, like it helps check the box, you know, mm-hmm. when anybody's doing IT due diligence of like, look, we can't, we can't use this, you know, somebody's basement sort of service. Like we need to go with competitor X because competitor X is owned by Oracle or IBM or some other large yeah. company that's going to stay around. I think this does give them a lot of cachet and a lot of credibility to say like, look, like obviously somebody felt they were worth $200 million to invest for a minority stake, not, not buy them out. So, yeah. you know, they've, they've yeah. got a war chest to stay around. So one of my favorite features about 1Password is this watchtower thing, because, you know, I've, I've, I thought I had a pretty good handle on passwords and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, since, since they, since I've been using it, I've been using their generate passwords option more often because, you know, I would, I would had a, had a sort of homemade formula, which is always the worst idea when it comes to security, right? Um, yeah. Which is just easier to remember. And a, a friend of mine who's big time in security says, you know, the opposite of security is convenience, right? So yes, it's a bit challenging to use passwords and stuff like that, but one password kind of takes off that edge. But I love Watchtower because I'm looking at my records right now. You know, I have 22 compromised passwords. I have, you know, I've reused the same password at 471 times. That's so obviously I've got some homework to do. I've got 126 weak passwords, you know, um, I've got 111 two-factor authentication sites, you know, that or 200 places where two-factor authentication is available. I started using um, one password for two-factor authentication when I can because I used to use Google Authenticator and I got burned by that last year when I had to switch phones out in an emergency. Um, yeah. So I, I use Authy, I use Google Authenticator, I use Microsoft Authenticator as well. But but I would, if, I, if I had my druthers, I would use 1Password for sure. Yeah, Authy lets you back up, but it's just so convenient to use 1Password because then when you are on your Mac, it automatically loads yeah. the two-factor code onto your clipboard. And so it yeah. just makes the whole signing in process just much smoother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you're putting everything in one place, but I mean, honestly, if somebody gets access to your 1Password, you're in trouble already. So yeah, yeah. yeah. two-factor code's probably not going to save you there. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good feature that they've built out. And now with the collaboration with Have I Been Pwned, uh, Troy Hunt's service, you know, that notifies about data breaches. Oh, is that how they're getting uh, this, this uh, Watchtower stuff in there? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, it went from just sort of like, you know, this has been reported to, I mean, you know, Have I Been Pwned is kind of the, you know, people now just whenever they find out about a breach, they tell Troy and then he loads the records into it. And he's got a sort of a clever system where, you know, it's like a one-way hash of the password. And so they're able to tell you if your password is in there, but not what the password is. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, and it's... You know, I think for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't sign up for Have I Been Pwned or one of these other services, they're finding out about these data breaches, and that's where the reused passwords really get you. So, yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and I I agree to a certain extent with the thing about security and convenience, but then I think it's important for people to know that, you know, sometimes it's just developers making hostile choices that don't actually lead to increased security. Like, my favorite is when they have a really short password limit. It's like, must be 8 to 12 characters, but must include a symbol in an uppercase letter. And you're like, no, 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 you know, because it's really, you know, every extra character is another bit of entropy that makes it harder to crack. And it doesn't really matter at all, whether it's an uppercase character, a number, a symbol or Mm -hmm. whatever, that's totally, you know, not mathematically sound reasoning. Right. Uh, But, you know, it ticks a box. It's like, oh, no, we required symbols on the password. So now, you know, we're more safe, even though Hmm. we limited the limit. 
length to a ridiculous, you know, right. short number instead of just like letting people have as long as they want, you know? I mean, what database are you using that you can't store 13 character long passwords in or 17 character long passwords? In? You know, I question your right. technology right. choices at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, just, you know, the way one password lets you customize the generation. And so if you want, you can just have words like, you know, I really like that, the feature where you just have normal words and then you can choose whatever separator you like, whether you want spaces or hyphens or underscores or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that all helps make it really easy for people. Uh, I always tell clients and people that if you're if you're at a loss for a password to think of song lyrics because they're pretty random and often contain slang and, you know, really? like huh. a line of a song is long enough that A, you know, you'll defeat any like sort of automated cracking attempts and then B, um, you'll be able to remember it, which is important. Mm. So there you go. That's a way to ditch your, your homemade cipher is just use your favorite songs. Right. So so where did the theme music come from? I always wondered this, and I meant to ask you this at the WWDC. Oh, the, theme, one, the, the music we use? Yeah, Space Jazz. I found it in the FAQ. Yeah, so, it's, yeah don't I mention it? Who it's, who it's from in there? Right. And is that person an iOS person? I thought I recognized no, the no, name. I, no, I have no idea who he is. I, I, I went to um, a site. I paid for the to use it. Um, just trying to think here. Let me see. Yes, it's under About. So show theme music, Space Jazz, Dmitry Rodionov, maybe? Yeah. Melody Loops. But I, I thought I recognized this name from the show notes this week. But maybe so I, I'm, I'm basically for Melody Loops is the service where I got the thing from. I think I linked to it, that page there. Yeah, yeah. so he wrote, he wrote this. And then when I was looking for theme music for Spotcast, I went back to his selection of stuff, and that's so the theme music from Spotcast is also by the same guy. Mm, well, um, I mean, I, all I have to hear is like two notes of this, and I could pick it out. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it gets stuck in my head and stuff. So yeah, but it's, you're right. It does grow on you. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've you know because I was in a lot. Of, I have a lot of apps that do music loop, music yeah, music loops and stuff like that. And so I was looking for something unique and and that you hadn't heard before. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I don't know, Dmitry Rodnov, wherever you are. We love you, man. <laughs> yeah, when I was jokingly singing the theme song, I was thinking earlier about, you know, you and Mark are big prog rock fans, and we probably oh, should yeah. have, like, more electric guitar or something like that in there, you know, something more rocky. But, uh, yeah, you know, Tim, I hadn't really thought about the um, the licensed nature of our theme music. I'm like, oh, gosh, I really hope it doesn't end up on, like, some really politically incorrect ad or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too fun and, you know, jazzy and video game sounding for that. I, I just, you know, I Cartoon? think... You, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, by, by choosing that mood, I don't think it, you know, I can't imagine, like, an offensive commercial using that. Yeah, and so, have you guys been watching Apple TV Plus? Who's who's subscribed and who hasn't subscribed yet? I, I'm not I'm not subscribed because I know I'm going to buy a MacBook Pro. It's almost certainly going to be the 16-inch, probably, in the, in the new year, when I have some more time to, one, sit down and, and move stuff over and get things reconfigured the way I'd like for the new laptop. But two, so I have time to binge watch as much as I can of the Apple TV Plus shows because <laughs> right. they will probably be close to done by that point. If I, I didn't look at their release schedule, but close to done. And if they're not, I maximize that free year's worth of, of content. Mm. 
Yeah, you get you get notifications on your Apple Watch and uh, your phone too when when the new episodes come out, so you could you know rush home and watch them as well, right? So yeah, Tim, have you watched any of the morning show? Yeah, I've, I'm caught up on the morning show as well as um, uh, for all mankind, and uh, I think I've watched four of C, and I watched one episode of Snoopy with my granddaughter. I'm waiting for her to come back to watch more. Are, but, you, are uh, you liking Morning Show or For All Mankind better? Morning Show is actually pretty good, but then I I tend to watch a lot of talk shows and stuff like that throughout the week. Right. Like I watch the late guys, you know the late night shows people and uh, I used to watch morning I used to watch talk shows all the time when I was like when I was younger and you know you watch entertainment tonight and that kind of stuff occasionally so um, it's sort of the format fits and it's very similar to you know um, not quite as funny as as um, what was the, the Tina Fey show um, 30 Rock 30 Rock yeah yeah and there was another it's one somewhere that, in between that, yeah so it was another one that Matthew Perry did as well before that they got cancelled did you ever you see know? Newsroom on Showtime you know I've never seen Newsroom jo- and Jonathan the host the other host of a podcast or Spotcast is uh, is huge into journalism. It's one of his favorite shows. He says it's very close to what it was like when he was in that that field. You know? Cool. All right. Thanks. Okay. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Okay. Good night. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.